everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deck Arts Podcast. I'm here with Noelle. She is an, another student who is in my master's program with me, and she is working on her thesis right now that involves the Villa Savoy and bodies and gender and a bunch of cool things and new ways of looking at it. So I'm going to let her explain what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> Thanks, Sophia. Um, so essentially, I, I'm still in the process of um, getting my pro- proposal together, which is due next week, actually. Um, so everyone can wish me luck with that. Um, but essentially what I want to do in my research is um, use the Villa Savoie as a case study. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, that's a building designed by Le Corbusier, and, um, and it's located in Poissy, which is an hour, an hour or so outside of Paris. Um, and I, I want to use that building as a case study and look at the ways in which Le Corbusier uses both architectonic color and glass to control the bodies of, um, of the building's occupants, and in turn, how that bodily control really explains um, or really demonstrates the progressive and regressive dimensions of Le Corbusier's work as it relates to gender. And so um, when you were going about thinking about this, um, you mentioned this earlier when we were talking personally, but this sort of goes back to like the modernist idea of um, passive feminine involvement. And so did you start, is that what started you on this topic? How did you even think this is what I want to do? Yeah. So, um, so I've been obsessed with this building since I first, uh, came across images of it. And, and, um, I, I've also always been really interested in ideas of the body and bodily control and, um, and uh, for those of you who know me, I, I also really have an interest in fashion um, and and how that relates to the body. So for me, I was I was really interested um, specifically in exploring that dimension of Le Corbusier's work, um, and you know, and and how that's explored in the Villa Savoie. But really, what added the gender aspect of it was just kind of the research process. Um, so I'm currently taking a class called Modernism in the Vernacular with uh, Mary McLeod at Columbia, and, and she's a leading Le Corbusier scholar, and, um, and she's done a lot of groundbreaking work on, on kind of feminist analysis of Le Corbusier and, um, and his collaborators. She wrote a fantastic book on Charlotte Perriand, um, which uh, which came out I think relatively recently, and um, and there was a 2002 interview that I came across um, in 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 which she had been uh, talking. I, th- I think it's in the Harvard Design Magazine, um, but I can find that for anyone who's interested. And uh, she essentially states that there's been an overemphasis on women as passive victims in modern architecture, as if it were entirely oppressive um, to women. And there's been insufficient exploration of the dialectical tensions of Le Corbusier's work um, and the progressive and regressive dimensions um, of his architecture as it relates to gender uh, and, and women specifically. So, um, because there's such a wealth of information written about Le Corbusier, he's, uh, you know, according to Beatrice Colomina, he's probably 
the most written about architect in the 20th century. <laughs> um, so I really needed an angle to discuss, uh, you know, to, to focus on what I wanted to research. And it seemed a natural fit that my interest in the body um, would kind of go with this, you know, idea of exploring gender and um, how it's not necessarily as black and white as it may have been portrayed uh, in the flood of publications since the 1980s on, on feminist analysis of his work. Oh, that's interesting. And so I'll post pictures of what it looks like for people, but is there certain aspects when you look at the building that sort of support or support what your claim is? Um, yeah. So, so one of the things that I'm really interested in, uh, and one of the primary texts I'll be, um, interacting with in my thesis is a book called Privacy and Publicity written by Beatrice Colomina. And it was published, I think in 1998. Um, and, Essentially, Colomina suggests that um, Le Corbusier's architecture can be it can be visually experienced um, as a series of photographic stills that causes the eyes to essentially read the space like a movie, like a film. Um, and so, in that way, she basically argues that we can reinterpret modern architecture as a form of mass media. But something that she really goes into um, kind of in this analysis is the Villa Savoie and uh, how it was featured in a 1925 movie um, by Le Corbusier, and it was made with somebody else. I don't remember who. Um, it may have been his cousin, Pierre Genereau. Um, but it, in the movie, it shows a woman walking around in the Villa Savoie, um, and it, essentially the camera follows her, uh, and it's very voyeuristic, Colomina argues, um, and, you know, it, it essentially, she essentially states that, you know, it shows the woman as being trapped inside of the house, um, you know, she can't go anywhere, uh, and, um, yeah, she's essentially held prisoner by, by the building, um, but the way I understand it is, um, actually kind of, you know, using Colomina's theory, um, not to say against her, but, <laughs> but a, a bit against her, um, is this idea that, you know, when you look at, and not just when you look at, but when you enter into a space that's designed by Le Corbusier, there's a feeling of constant motion, um, so, you know, reading the space like a film, letting your eyes take in all of the colors, all of the different reflective surfaces, and, um, and she goes into this whole idea about transparency, too. But um, the sense of constant motion, I feel, actually kind of proves Colomina's point wrong, because when you go into the space, you know, you don't feel trapped. You don't look at these images and feel like you can't go anywhere. In fact, it's actually the opposite, which is what Colomina states at the beginning of her book. It feels as though, you know, when you enter Le Corbusier, um, you know, building, you feel as though someone has just left the room. And so this feeling of constant motion, I think, actually kind of contradicts Colomina's claim that women are somehow imprisoned in this space and that they, you know, they can't go anywhere and that they're held hostage. Um, so that's kind of one specific thing that I'll be, that I'll be going into. Um, but I mean, I don't know. It's difficult to yeah. <laughs> narrow it down. No, that's interesting that you, 
talk about the mobility because it's always an issue with women in homes and how do they move within the homes. Exactly. So I totally, I mean, and it's so, I mean, just using Villa Savoy is just one case study, but if you look at, I think it's Villa Roche Mm -hmm. in France, it has the same, that's the only, like, Le Corbusier building I've been to. Yeah. (laughs) That's the only one I can sort of, like, reference in my mind what you mean about, like, Mm -hmm. mobility, and Mm -hmm. it's true, like, there is a sense of how do you move through the space, and that's the emphasis, which is really interesting. But I want to go back to what you said about it feels like someone's left the room. Mm-hmm. What do you think me- you mean by that? Because in my head, I think of like a ghost. Yes. Because <laughs> that's like what my immature mind goes to. But I'm not sure. Like, what? What do you? How do you interpret like that? That. Yeah. So that's actually one of my favorite things that Colomina has ever um, has ever written. Uh, so it's it's part of a larger quote wherein she talks about um, Losian or Losian, wherein she talks about um, yeah Losian interiors, and she compares them to uh, to those of Le Corbusier, and essentially she states that when you're walking around in a Los interior, you feel as though you're about to encounter somebody at every twist and turn. Um, because there are all these kind of, you know, secret pockets of volume, uh, and everything is very hidden and shrouded, and it's it's really interesting. And she contrasts this with Le Corbusier's architecture and states that, you know, it's, it's the opposite. With Le Corbusier, when you walk into um, a space that's designed by him, you feel a sense of just constant motion, and, and you feel as though, yeah, as if a ghost or, you know, the other... The only other occupant who lives in the house has just left the room. Even if it's completely empty, it feels as if there's, you know, somehow someone just left and moved through. And it, it has this feeling of continuous continuous movement. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's just such a amazing way to look at a building. Yeah. I would never... I mean, I can see where she comes from in saying that, but it's not... Something that immediately I'm like, someone has just been here. When I walk through, you know, it's so intuitive Mm -hmm. to think that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you're studying um, the Villa Savoy and the body, do you also or will you also look at the furniture? Because I, he also does the furniture inside, correct? So um, actually, the the way it is currently... um, Currently furnished is, uh, you know, it has several pieces by Le Corbusier, and um, but when it was originally designed, um, it was actually furnished with um, uh, with the wife of the clients, uh, whose name I am actually forgetting right now. I feel awful, but um, anyways, um, he he actually fought with her a lot during the during the um, design process and construction process. They they exchanged a lot of letters back and forth that were really um, that were really contentious. But um, but yeah, no, it was actually originally furnished with her furniture and um, and not Le Corbusier's. Um, but it's interesting because if you look at the photographs of Le Corbusier's Villa Savoie. Um, that he ended up publishing just after its construction was was finished. Um, he really carefully stages the photos, which is another point that that Colomina discusses. Um, he in privacy and publicity. 
um, he really carefully stages the photos so that um, so that every single shot is extremely constrained um, and you know it doesn't show uh, you know Madame Savoie's uh, furniture. It, it shows what Le Corbusier wants to show. So um, yeah, so in that sense, the photographs are are very didactic. Um, yeah, which is yeah. which is again what Colomina argues. Yeah, it's interesting that she <laughs> she um, they had attention as like a woman who was like, "This is what I want my space to look like," and then as the male like architect being like, "But no, I'd rather you have this." It's just an interesting like addition or layer to mm-hmm. what you're then studying. Exactly, because initially. Um, I mean, it was, you know, they were a very wealthy family and they essentially told Le Corbusier to do whatever he wanted to do, um, with its design. Uh, but you know, as all, (laughs) as all, um, you know, people who have ever been involved in any sort of architectural, um, you know, construction or design or, you know, work in any capacity really, uh, probably know, uh, you know, the reality of things once actual uh, ground starts to break is, you know, can, can, there can be a lot of tensions. So, so that's one of the things that, that kind of um, comes to light, you know, when you're looking at these different primary sources. And, and yeah, exactly. There's, you know, it's, it's really tempting to kind of look at the, look at the relationship between them two and try to, between the two of them and, and try to understand the different dynamics happening there who holds the power you know how does gender play into that um and also thinking too about um you know the groundwork that was laid before the construction of the Villa Savoie by all of the early 20th century French domestic reformers um because you know Le Corbusier you know maybe saying okay I think this is the ideal kitchen Uh, you know, this is the most efficient, this is the existence minimum, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the groundwork for that was really laid by women. Um, you know, even in the, in the 18th century, you look at, um, Catherine Beecher, uh, you know, and, and her book on, um, on household management and, um, and also Christine Frederick's book, um, you know, you also Paulette Vernage, who who is not a, a very well known uh, domestic reformer, but she was a, a French domestic reformer um, who was working at, at the same time as um, Le Corbusier, and she actually published a book called "Si les femmes faisent uh, les maisons," which is you know if women designed houses or made houses. So it's so it's really interesting to look at you know, and and actually that even kind of goes into Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, and he went to women's clubs and listened to their concerns, um, you know, about how they would like to emancipate themselves from household drudgery through more efficient domestic design. And, and, you know, he took those considerations, took their concerns into consideration and, and he really valued their input and listened to them and responded to them. And so, you know, you have to wonder, okay, how much is Le Corbusier, responding to this or taking this in, you know, his, his work in domestic efficiency, if you want to call it that, um, was really built from the ground off of, you know, the work of these other, uh, these other women reformers. 
Yeah, did he have any correspondence with any of them? Or was it more just he read what they were publishing and putting out there? Yeah, so that's something that I'm still researching. Um, You know, so I don't have an answer to that. But Mary McLeod um, has a really fantastic uh, lecture that's actually available on YouTube. Um, And it's it's fantastic (laughs) because Mary McLeod. But... um, (laughs) But, yeah, she actually talks all about um, the Corbusier and early 20th century French domestic reform and this idea of the new woman. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot more information about that mm, there. That's awesome. I'll post that on with the show notes so everyone can also find that, along with all the other good books that you've brought to light. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did the Savoy family have children? Um, they did. Um... Yeah, so it's it's interesting if we look at the images here, or actually if I can find a floor plan, let's see where it is. I can point out where um, their son's bedroom was because it's in a really it's it's been discussed in a lot of um, in a lot of texts how it's kind of strangely okay. I'm not find not finding a floor plan, but um, <laughs> but it's. It's kind of strangely off to the side. Um, eh, that's okay. Like an afterthought? Um, not an afterthought, but it's it's more difficult to access, and it's um, not. I mean, not even difficult to access, but it's just separated um, in a bit of an odd way. So when when you go up the stairs, I really. Why don't they have the floor plan? The book we're going through is awesome, by the way, though. It has um, yeah, a it's, lot of images. It's, um, it's called Le Corbusier, um, La Ville de Savoie. Um, <clears throat> and it's published by the Fondation Le Corbusier, which is actually the, the world's um, largest source of primary material available on Le Corbusier. He um, made a very early decision to, quote, save every piece of his work of himself. Um, and so there's now an absolutely massive archive, um, which mega, mega publications have essentially tried to make sense of, especially in, in recent years. But, um, and, and the book is by Jacques Spriglio, spelled S-B-R-I-G-L-I-O, um, published in 1999. It's cute. Yeah. <laughs> Very it's, holdable. Yeah, this, this is an English um, translation, actually. The original is published in French. But they have... The French on the other side, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. This is a good, this one's a really good addition. Ah, I wish I could find the floor plan. But anyways, it's, you know, as you as you walk into the house, um, you walk up this kind of, you know, almost a double helix, uh, or not double helix, but like a DNA helix uh, style staircase. Um, and then you, you come upstairs, uh, you know, and... Uh, uh, alternatively, uh, you could use the ramp on the right, which is actually how the woman in the 1925 video uh, film walks into the into the space. So there's a ramp and a staircase. Yes, which again goes back to this whole idea of mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, but sorry, I'm a, I'm a very visual person, so it's t- it's no, tough yeah, to, and it's interesting <laughs> that tough to talk about it without the floor plans. Um. In his, in oh, what is it called? Oh, the 
Un Habitacion in um, Marse- Marseille. Marseille, yeah. yeah. Um, their kid, the kids' rooms there are really interesting. Like they're a little cell sized, and then like yes. they're all very like child friendly, but then like separated from the rest of the house, sort of in a way like. And you can open the sliding doors, and you can get to the other child's room. And I just think it's right. interesting that there's like this separation, but also like thought of like opening and how the child will function in the room. Yes. So interesting. Yeah, exactly. And and especially, too, how, you know, how you said it's like a little cell. Um, I mean, I'm, as I'm sure you know, and a lot of people know, Le Corbusier was obsessed with this idea of the cell, the monastic cell um, in particular. So, um, and you can see that, too, in his in his later work, the um, Cabinon de Vacances, um, in... Um, in Oh my gosh, I'm, I can't believe... Oh, uh, Cap Martin. That's where it is, in, in Cap Martin. Um, in the southeast, I believe, area of France. Um, anyway, this Cabinon de Vacances is really um, kind of a, a prime example. It's the pinnacle of his understanding of, you know, the existence minimum and what, uh, you know, how somebody can live and function in a really small space. Mm. Like the precursor to tiny house, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> completely, completely sen- setting up the groundwork for that. Okay, I don't know if I'll ever find the floor plans, but but I mean, I would just I would have just referred to it and, and basically <laughs> basically agreed with what you said because it's it's off of um, off of a study and it's kind of it's there's. There's like the kitchen over here, and you know, sorry, people are listening to this, so they can't see where my hands are pointing. <laughs> but the kitchen is over, you know, kind of to the right, bottom right, as as you have an aerial perspective looking down. Um, so the kitchen's in the bottom right, and then you have the study to its left, and then you have the child's um, bedroom, the oh. son's bedroom, um, in the bottom left corner. So it's, um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if you'd like to live in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> did they? So, did they live there their whole lives? And once it was built, or was it? So, actually, I really don't know. I, I'm I'm very much still in the other, <laughs> still in the other part of my of my research. So, I haven't even really touched um, on the Savoie family very yeah. much. Um, but that's a really good question. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just always interested in these people who live in these types of homes because mm. it's so unaccustomed to like how I live personally yeah. I mean I'm I've never lived in a place where it's so modern and so much emphasis is giving to efficiency and simplicity yeah I to me I mean I've lived somewhere where there's modern amenities but it's so different I yeah, feel like right. when you're I always want to know did they like living there did mm-hmm. I had just so many questions I mean did she feel comfortable in the space really like, right. you, you don't know. I mean, you would think, because she eventually got made, and they probably lived there for oh, at least some time. But. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the building itself has, it has an interesting history. I haven't been yet. You have to go. I know. Well, that's why. So <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, I'm going to um, to Paris in January to do all of my field work. Um so I'll be using all of the all of the archival materials from the Fondation Le Corbusier, and I'll be, you know, regularly, <laughs> regularly, definitely, <laughs> um, going to the Villa Savoie itself. But um, 
But uh, what I was going to say is, is the building has a really interesting history because I know, um, I you know, it was, it was, I think they moved out pretty quickly because it was um, really, it was right between the wars, World War One and, and World War II. Um, it was built in 1928 and finished in, uh, or, well, construction officially began in 1929, but it began to be designed in 1928, and it finished in 19, was finished in 1931. And, um, and during the war, uh, I, oh my gosh, I feel bad, I'm mixing it up with other things. Uh, but it, it got used at some point, um, I, I think as either army barracks or a hospital, I do not remember which, because I am currently mixing it up with the um, Pineo Sanatorium. Mm -hmm. I think it was used for army barracks. Um, but yeah, so that happened, and then at, at one point it was also a school, I think, but I also maybe, again, mixing it up with Pineo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, as you can see, I've really just been doing a lot of theoretical reading so yeah. far. <laughs> um, but, um, but yes, yeah, so, yeah, but anyways, and then it, it kind of got, um, I, I know also that in, I think, the 1960s, there was a major issue with, uh, with them wanting to tear it down and build a school. That's what it was. Um, yeah, they, they wanted to tear down the building and build a school. Um, and Le Corbusier was still alive, and he obviously fought against this, uh, you know, very, um, very uh, determinedly. And, uh, and, and he was able to actually get the building declared um, a, you know, an, 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 a site of, of architectural importance. And it was the first building in France to ever be declared a site of architectural importance while the designer... Uh, while well, the architect was still alive. So, yeah, so so that was really, um, you know, that speaks to its profound, um, to its profound importance. But, um, where was I going with that? <laughs> oh, shoot. What was I don't remember. Oh, oh okay. yeah, so, but I, I was going to say, actually, the history of its restoration um, is, you know, to get it to its current state is also very interesting, and there's a fantastic um, lecture, again, on YouTube, actually, um, where the head of um, the preservation and restoration of, um, of the building, and actually of, um, I think, all the Corbusier buildings in France, um, discusses the building's history and its, and its restoration and preservation process, and all that. Yeah, it's really interesting. It had some structural issues, yes. that would be expected with such a flat roof, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it leaked. Um, yeah, one year after, um, after you know everyone, the, after the family moved in, um, already the owners were sending letters to Le Corbusier, stating that you know, oh, the roof is leaking and this is happening, and you know, all of these kind of different structural problems. Um, and he, he responded like, well, that's architecture. <laughs> Not my <laughs> that's <problem>. basically, <laughs> that's, that's basically what, um, yeah, what his reply was. That's hilarious. But even despite that, he really considered it. Um, and you know, this is how many critics approach and, you know, and think of this building. Uh, he, he really thought of it as kind of the perfect building. Um, 
you know, obviously the five points of architecture, flat roof being one of them, um, but, uh, or, you know, flat, like, functional, usable roof uh, being one of them. But, um, yeah, no, he had plans to actually uh, kind of use the Villa Savoie as, like, a cookie-cutter house, and he won, he, he proposed, um, he proposed, it's in, in one of the uh, documents at the Fondation Le Corbusier, um, that there basically be a town composed entirely of, um, of Villa Savoie buildings in uh, South America. And I don't remember the exact location, but um, yeah, so he had this intention of creating the perfect domestic dwelling and being able to just kind of take it and transplant it anywhere else, um, which actually also brings up a really interesting um, point in, you know, in thinking about its relationship to the surrounding landscape. But yeah, I don't see it <laughs> being in South America, but that could just be me. <laughs> um, yeah. So is the roof usable then? Can you go up and spend time on it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so that that is really one of his, um, you know, one of his five points of architecture. Yeah, and even Villa Roche, you're able to go up as well, and there's like a little section where you can like hang out. Exactly. Yeah, and so the Villa Savoie has the same thing, and uh, as you can see in this image here, so um, you know he not only has uh, you know a usable roof, but he has kind of a um, you know an, another level of usable roof. Uh, just outside of the living room and kitchen area. Um, so all of this is open? Uh, so this is all sliding glass. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and so this is from the living room looking out onto, um, you know, what's really like a central kind of courtyard. Um, and then that leads up, again, you know, notably with a ramp to, uh, you know, to the actual roof. And, and when you get up to the top, there's a little area um, you can see oh, right here. Oh, the trees. Yeah, there's a little area with room for plants, and you can sit and, uh, you know, but there's still some, uh, there are still some structures that kind of, you know, forbid you from completely aimlessly wandering the roof. You You have to kind of, you know, stay within these certain areas, but at the same time, it's, um, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting because it's a very, it's also really like curvilinear on the roof and, and that kind of, you know, even though it's in a sense confining you from wandering everywhere, it, it also, um, you know, kind of imbues the sense of motion at the same time. So, and then these are actually these photos are amazing. further images of the roof. So you can see that it has these kind of, you know, these different areas to yeah. sit. And I love his use of tile. That's yeah. one of my favorite things. Yeah, his his use of material and particularly reflective material is extremely interesting. And, and actually, the tile in the bathroom. Um, oh my here. gosh! Yeah. So so the bathroom is one of my favorite uh, places in this house um, for so many reasons. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but one of which is the tile. Um, it's this beautiful, bright blue, um, you know, kind of aquamarine color. Uh, and at the end, basically, there's a sunken in tub. Um, 
and you can kind of, you know, go in the tub or you can sit on the tile on the edge and just, you know, put your feet in and there's ample space to kind of lie down there or to put your towels or, you know, really whatever you need. Candles. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and then at the end, there's this structure, um, that's really like a lounge. It's, it really looks like the LC4 lounge, um. Made by uh, by Corbusier, Le Corbusier and Periand um, and Pierre Genret, and it mimics the shape of the body. So you know, going back to that idea of how is the body, um, you know, manipulated in space, um, you know, it's it it's interesting because there's this kind of back and forth tension where okay, is the body, um, you know, the agent that's deciding how to move or is it the space that's telling the body how to move? Because, um, you know, this, the curve of the LC4 lounge is supposed to mimic, uh, the shape of the body as you lie down and you can see, you know, it it kind of curves and it it seems like it would be comfortable and, and like it mimics the very, um, you know, a very reductive, uh, human shape. And yet at the same time, it also, you know, it's made of tile, it's clearly not flexible. So when you sit, you have to sit in it a certain way. And, and, you know, while it is supposed to mimic the body in a certain sense, it's also supposed to, uh, you know, supposed to promote certain types of posture and things like that. It was, it was thought to be uh, very helpful at this point in time to, um, to recline back a certain way, um, which is something that you actually see in, um, in the Paimio chair designed by Alvar Alto, um, for the Paimio sanatorium. The action of leaning back is supposed to open up your lungs so that you can breathe more easily. Um, and also, you know, clearly it's not applicable here because this is inside of a bathroom, but, (laughs) but in the case of Alvar Alto's, uh, Paimio chair, leaning back in that way, um, you know, the, the chairs were also placed on, on the roof of the Paimio Sanatorium and, uh, and in various places, kind of on the edge of, um, of the stairways or going up through, through the main stairs, uh, so that you could get sun. And so leaning back not only opens your lungs up, but you're also better able to kind of take in sunlight that way. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, and, you know, as, and obviously with modernism, these ideas of healthfulness and sanitation uh were extremely important Mm -hmm. yeah I mean it's amazing um so when you're so when you've been since you've been doing your preliminary research have you stumbled upon anything that has caught your eye or has been interesting and you're like oh I did not expect to find this yeah oh that's a really good question um I mean I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say that, you know, I didn't expect to find any of it, but something that I think has surprised me about the process um, is that, you know, kind of the more, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it can be very daunting to, um, to take on a subject like Le Corbusier, especially the Villa Savoie. I mean, they are you know, again, probably the most written about, uh, you know, uh, it, it is probably the most written about building and architect of the entire 20th century. Um, so again, you know, I, 
for those of you who are listening, I'm, I'm really still in the preliminary uh, uh, research process. But in reading all of these different texts and trying to sort through this wealth of information, um, and really not just a wealth of information, but an overabundance of, of um, information, it, it's kind of been something that has almost relieved me in a way because strangely enough, the, you know, the more I've read and learned about all of this, um, you know, the, the more you can see where despite, you know, the huge number of publications, there may still be areas to, you know, to further research something or to, to further understand something or to, to add greater nuance to the conversation that is already out there. So, I mean, that's, that's obviously what I'm trying to do with my research, but, um, you know, I guess I found that a little bit surprising because I wasn't, you know, necessarily expecting to feel a sense of relief, like, oh, I, I, you know, I feel that my research will actually add, um, you know, add to the literature that's out there. Um, and, you know, hopefully it will be, (laughs) it will be successful in that. Yeah. But, um, but I guess, I guess that's been surprising. Um, cause I wasn't necessarily expecting to have that reaction. No, I feel like it's definitely, um, as someone who is part of the gender certificate program, mm-hmm. I feel like it's not some, I feel like that this manipulation of the body and the, um, in, in relation to gender is something that gets discussed but never gets discussed in depth in a way that I want it to take it to. Right. It always stops when I get to the point of like, well, what now? Like, right. what then? Right. And I feel like it's so exciting, like, your paper's going to do that. Well, I'm hoping. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's fantastic because since the 1980s, you know, there have been so many fantastic publications, um, uh, you know, about, you know, architecture and uh, and women. I mean, there's... Architecture and Feminism, As Long As It's Pink, um, The Grand Domestic Revolution, uh, you know, a a number of of different publications have really made fantastic, um, you know, groundbreaking analyses. But it is something that, you know, I don't think that anyone would hardly describe that, um, that goal as, you know, as finished, you know, I mean, there's always more to write about with that. And, you know, and also just, you know, if you think about feminist critique in general, I think, you know, there's so many different ways in which someone can go about it. I mean, there's like post-structuralist feminist critique. There's, you know, the idea of relational feminism, which is what Mary McLeod talks about. There's, um, you know, there's so many different things that you can kind of, so, so many different uh, you know, lenses that you could use to, um, to kind of research all of this. So, you know, yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping to bring, bring things to, a, another level where, you know, I don't necessarily feel satisfied that, that there is research out there yet that has sufficiently explained, you know, precisely this topic and, in precisely this way, um, I mean, certainly people have, have written about Le Corbusier and women and bodies. Um, there's a great book. I, I think it's called Disembodied Utopian Cities. Oh. Or sorry, Embodied Utopian Cities. I don't quite remember, but I'll, I'll look it up and let you know. Um, 
But, you know, the way in which gender and the body often gets talked about with Le Corbusier is through his, um, you know, through his, like, urban planning. And so I wanted to, you know, okay, like, let's go to a domestic space and let's do this. And, you know, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, a number of scholars are doing fantastic work on, but, um, you know, but not necessarily connecting it with this, with a three-dimensional understanding of the body and, you know, what embodiment means, what it what it means to feel, uh, you know, to feel one's body moving through the space. Yeah, it's super exciting. <laughs> Thanks. I'm excited for you to go to um, France and yeah. we can keep up with you. <laughs> oh my god, I think I'm I think I'm going to cry the first time I see the building. <laughs> I've read I've read so much about it, and I've poured over so many images. I mean, it's just, I mean, it really is constantly in the back of my mind and it's always something that I'm, that I'm ruminating over. And it's, so when I actually am there and when I do feel the actual, you know, bodily experience of being in the space, that will, I think, be a really profound moment. Yeah. And it's, it'll be interesting to see if you're, take on anything changes once you've been in the space. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe I'll end up completely agreeing with Manchester <laughs> Colomina and, you know, yes, I do feel like I'm being, you know, like I'm being watched and controlled and, you know. Um, but who knows? Maybe maybe I'll, I'll feel the space of, maybe I'll, I'll feel that, you know, the sensation of endless motion yeah. the way that, you know, she also describes. So, I'm very, I'm very, very curious to see what will happen with that. Well, I'm excited. And um, the the Deck Arts podcast now has a Twitter. So when you go, we can follow up with you when you go. (laughs) And that's where I'll post all these photos. So it's Deck Arts podcast at Deck Arts podcast. So um, I'll show you guys all these pictures because I feel bad we've been talking about all them. So I'll post them (laughs) on the Twitter so everyone can see. Thanks so much for coming and talking about um, your thesis. Thank you so so much for having me. I really appreciate it. (laughs) All right. Bye, guys. Bye.